What a wonderful morning of worship it has been today. I'm so glad to see you guys. I hope you're doing well. We're going to continue in this uh, sermon series answering the question, how does God grow His church? And we're looking into the New Testament book of Acts. And uh, we do have these available in the front. If you want to follow along, these are just the New Testament book of Acts. We have them in the front. I think they're five bucks. So it's the book of Acts and the Bible book of Acts that you can follow along with and take notes. For today, we're going to answer further into our sermon series, How Does God Grow His Church? And, and as we were singing those songs together, I, I just couldn't help but just praise God because He's a transformative God. Do you believe that about God? Do you believe that God transforms broken lives? That God transforms broken people? If you're a born-again believer in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have inside of you this amazing testimony about a God, a living God, who changed your life. You have a testimony inside of you about a life that you lived that was once contrary to the Lord's will for for you and contrary to, for, uh, to the purpose for which He designed you, and then someone came along in your life. Maybe it was a preacher on TV or a Sunday school teacher or a mom or a dad or a grandpa or a grandma or an aunt or a really good friend. One of those instances, um, in one of those instances, that person entered your life and they told you about this God uh, who was once dead but rose from the dead and conquered death and sin. And now this power resides in this God whom we worship named Jesus to change your life. And so you have inside of you, church, inside of you, individual believers, this wonderful opportunity to be used by God to transform someone's life by telling them about how God changed you. Do you remember what it was like before you knew Jesus? We were like the lame beggar in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Only many of us weren't physically handicapped. Many of us were spiritually handicapped and separated from the God who loves us, who desired to know us and walk with us, who desired for us to be righteous and to fulfill a purpose for our lives. We were separated from Him living our lives and our own desires and according to our own will, entrapped and enslaved to sin. And then we heard the glorious gospel, right? Someone told us about Jesus. Do you remember that day when someone proclaimed that message to you? Do you remember maybe for the first time understanding your sin and, and what that did to you in your relationship to God? And do you remember the, the blessing of the, the second part of that gospel message, the good news about what Jesus did for us on the cross? The point of the message today is God desires to grow His church through the proclamation of the gospel. God desires to grow His church through the proclamation of the Gospel. Now, how does that happen? We're going to look and see how it happened in this passage, and then we're going to kind of button all this up and how it happens in your life. So look with me in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. 
Last week we talked about verses 1 through 10. Peter and John are walking 3 p.m., the time of prayer, into the temple at the beautiful gate, which is the gate where people walk through to go to temple and pray. There's a man there who's uh, lame or handicapped since birth. He couldn't walk. He's begging for money, begging for alms, as it was written in the Scripture. And he identifies Peter and John and asks money for, for money from them. And Peter turns and says, I don't have any money. I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I'm going to give to you. He says, stand up and walk. Stand up and be healed in the name of Jesus. And he grabbed him by his arm and he picked him up and the man starts walking. He's healed. And they walk into the temple and this man's jumping and celebrating and yelling and praising God for what God did in his life. And the people are gathered around and they're amazed and they're in awe. And now Peter's got this crowd of thousands of people gathered around him. And now he's going to tell them what just happened. And that's where we find our text for today in Acts chapter 3 beginning in verse 11. The people respond to the healing and Peter redirects their amazement to God. Verse 11 says, While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Columnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by, his, or by our own power or godliness? So immediately the people start to gather around Peter and this healed man. They all know this man. They know he was born handicapped, unable to walk, unable to work, unable even to transport himself to the temple grounds to beg for food, for resources, and so they're amazed that this man is now walking, leaping, and praising God. They gather in a place called the Portico of Solomon. And that is on the east side of the temple. People would gather there during, before, during, and after the time of prayer. They would, it, it would be like a, it was a community center. So they would gather and talk about all kinds of stuff. Right now, at the center of everyone's attention, is this man who's been saved and Peter and John, who were the ones directly involved in him being healed. First thing Peter does is he, he takes their attention, which no doubt is focused on he and John, and he's going to redirect it to God. Because the healing really was just a sign of the power of Jesus Christ and the offer of salvation that he makes to all people. Peter asks the crowd something very interesting. He looks at them and says, why are you amazed at this? I found that question to be really interesting. Why, why did Peter say that? We don't have to go very far to understand why he asked that because what had just happened uh, just a few days earlier and is described in Acts chapter 2 is when Peter stood up in front of the people and proclaimed on the day of Pentecost what Jesus did and who he was. And then right after that, 3,000 people are saved and follow through with baptism. That was quite an event. After an event such as that, it makes sense that Peter would look around and say, why are you amazed about this? Since that time, there had been a growth of the church and more people were saved and people were being healed, all of that being done in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is just one man being healed in their presence and they're amazed. And Peter asked them, why are you amazed at this? Well, the answer is people, they're always amazed at extraordinary things, aren't they? I mean, it's human nature to stare and to think about things that 
don't happen every day. That example of that would be, you know, when you drive by a traffic accident. What does everybody do when they drive by a car on the side of the road? We stare at it, right? We can't help it. We're driving because we need to know why the car's on the side of the road, right? We have to know that. Much to our detriment. Or you're walking down Duval and you see some visitor dressed up in a crazy costume. What do you do? You're staring. Sometimes you're telling your kids not to stare. I remember one time we were on a cruise boat. We had the kids on this ship. And they had a, a, a man who was an illusionist. And he did his whole thing. And I have to admit that he was spectacular. The things he did in front of us were amazing. And I looked down while he was doing his, doing his illusions. And our girls' eyes were just like silver dollars. They're just like... Is that guy really floating? How did that card get from over there, over there? They were amazed at his illusions. He gathered a crowd because people were amazed at what they saw because they didn't see that every day. Now when you think about that, about human nature, and we all agree, is, is bent toward looking at and paying attention to amazing things, the question I have for you that will be quite convicting, I'm sure, is... Is God and His amazing transformative work in your life reflected in the way that you live? People should look at our life, at the way we live, at, at the way we exercise faith, at the decisions we make, and, and they should be in awe. People should look at us and know that there's something different and wonder in amazement, what is that in your life that makes you so different than everybody else? Do the people that we spend time with at, at home or work or out on the boat or on the golf course or around our own dinner table see Jesus through our actions and our attitudes? Are they in amazement at God's work in our lives? You see, because God plans to grow His church through the proclamation of the Word of God, and more specifically, through you and you and you telling people about how God changed your life. And the best part about this is it's so easy to do. Think about your life before you knew Jesus. Think about all the things that God's done in your life after you met Jesus, and then tell people about it. You are a living testimony. Think about this. You are a living, breathing testimony of the power of God to change a life. How do I know that? Because God changed your life. I'm sure that many people in the crowd gathered around Peter and John and wondered, how, how did this take place? And they learned from Peter and John that it took place in the name of Jesus Christ from Nazareth. And I'm sure the people, as they heard this, wondered, you, you mean Jesus, the Nazarene, the, the carpenter's son, the one that was hung on the cross, the one that died? Yes, that one. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. 
It's important for us to remember this context, and I want to give you just a little bit of understanding about this context. Peter, Peter and John are in the temple. There's thousands of people gathered around them, and most of these people, if not all of them, would have been Jews. They would have known the familiar Old Testament passages. And so what Peter's going to do next, he's going to lay out a defense using the Old Testament to show his brothers and sisters that Jesus is the Messiah for whom they're waiting. And then after that, he's going to tell them, how does that change your life? So look now in verse 13. Peter's going to give a biblical defense of Jesus' Messiahship, or a defense from the Bible telling them that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one sent by God to save them from their sins. Verse 13 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. This is Peter talking. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murder released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Wow, I'll tell you what, church. If I was going to decide how to open up a sermon in front of maybe the whole city of Key West, I don't know that I would use that as my opener, right? He just told all of these people that they're responsible for killing the Messiah. I wouldn't think that Peter would be accused of soft-pedaling the gospel in order to win converts to Christ. But what he did was brilliant and inspired by the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter begins his testimony about Jesus through Old Testament lineage. And every good Jew could trace back their family line back to the 12 tribes of Jacob or Israel. And everybody knew that well. So first, he traces the initial pathway of God's promise that he originally made to a man named Abraham, which was passed to Isaac and then to Jacob and then on to the 12 tribes, or his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. He continues to say that their God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob, that he glorified this man Jesus from Nazareth, which means that he crowned Jesus with glorious greatness. Peter testifies that Jesus is, in fact, the messianic king for whom Israel waited. These are very significant words that Peter says here. And in this part of his sermon, Peter calls Jesus God's servant in verse 13. The Israelites would have known the Old Testament passage of Isaiah chapter 53 well. So inside of this context where Peter talks about how Jesus was brutally tortured and murdered, Peter gives Jesus the title of God's servant. And so he's hearkening their their, uh, memories back to an Old Testament passage of Isaiah chapter 53. This is an Old Testament passage that the Israelites would have known well and did in fact believe was a description of their Messiah who would one day come. So Peter now connects this Old Testament passage and what happened to Jesus when he died together. And inside of this passage, inside of Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah who would one day come and die and what he would do. He describes him. And think with me now. Think did Jesus fulfill this? Saying that he has no stately form or majesty. He was common. 
He was despised and forsaken by men. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But by His scourging, we are healed. All of us have gone astray. All of us have gone our own way. But the iniquity of us all was laid on Him. His grave was assigned with wicked men and He was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, He Himself bore our sin, the sin of many, and He, in fact, interceded for the transgressors. So Peter wraps all this up and brings it all together to help them to see who Jesus is. In verse 13, Peter boldly tells the people that they were, in fact, God's instruments in fulfilling the prophecy about Jesus' suffering and death. That was, of course, prophesied by God, and yet that remained on them the iniquity of their sin for clamoring for Jesus to be crucified, but forgiveness would await them. He reminds them, this crowd, many of whom were the same crowd gathered around when Pontius Pilate came out and offered to release Jesus. And yet they clamored for the notorious murderer Barabbas to be released instead. Peter reminds them that Jesus is in fact holy and righteous. That no one had any legitimate evidence against Him that He committed any crimes. But the religious leaders were jealous of Him. They didn't like what He had to say, what He taught. They were convicted by His teaching and so they convinced the crowd to cry out for the release of Barabbas and for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now just step back just for a moment and think about this. Jesus took Barabbas' place on that cross. We are Barabbas. You know that? We're the ones that committed the sins against God. We're the ones that, that justly should receive God's punishment for our sin. And Jesus took our place and received God's wrath for us on the cross. Like Barabbas on that day who was set free even though he was guilty, you and I who were once guilty have been set free by Jesus. And our lives have been transformed. The blood that poured out from Jesus on that cross as an atonement for our sins is applied to any and all who turn in sin from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In verse 15, Peter proclaims to the crowd that God confirmed Jesus' deity by raising Him from the dead on the third day. Jesus didn't just raise from the dead and appear to one or two people. He appeared to hundreds of people after He rose from the dead. There were hundreds of witnesses that said that they saw, touched, heard, were in the presence of a risen Jesus, the one who was dead and buried but then came back to life. Peter chose to open his speech to the people by reminding them of the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection to proclaim his identity as the Messiah and to help them understand 
that they are, in fact, culpable for his death. And then he continues in verse 16. Imagine the brokenness of the people as they start to recognize who Jesus is, as they start to recognize what they did directly or indirectly leading to Jesus' death. He continues in verse 16, says, By faith in, in His name, that's the name of Jesus, His name has made this man strong. As Peter continues to proclaim the message and preach the sermon, here's the guy next to him who's evidence of, of Jesus' power to transform life. This man who was once, once lame and, and begging at the temple gates is now standing and leaping and praising God. Peter turns and says, By faith, this man has been made strong, whom you see and you know. So the faith that comes through Jesus, verse 16, has given Him this perfect health in front of all of you. Peter now is directing their gaze back to Jesus. It's not by the power of Peter and John that this man's been healed. It's by the spoken word and the power of faith in Jesus as his Messiah. And Jesus didn't just, just heal one leg or two legs. The text says that Jesus healed all of him. He's the holistic healer. He has perfect health. He's now standing there as evidence of the power of Jesus. Jesus is the original holistic healer. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus made him whole again. This man being able to walk, this man being healed of his infirmities, healed his life. He, he's now able to work. He's now able to come in and sacrifice and worship in the temple. He's restored back to life. Everyone in that crowd witnessed this great miracle. And now they know that Jesus is the one who healed him. Peter continues, verse 17, addressing these crowds. Thousands of people gathered around he says, and now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. While the actions of the religious leaders in the crowd were terrible, they acted in ignorance. They didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. They were really just pawns being used by the enemy Satan. By now, Peter has laid out the incriminating case against God's people. Every thought they had, every word they uttered, every action they completed in the great rebellion against God's Son, Jesus, has now been brought to light. It's almost as if a spotlight has been shined into their hearts and their sin has been uncovered. The power of Jesus is validated by the man once lame and begging at the gates standing next to Peter. And now picture this crowd gathered around thinking in their minds what they did on that day. Some of them were the ones that shouted, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Others were, were some that stirred up the crowd. Some of them were the religious leaders that gathered by night. And, and maybe even some in that crowd were the very ones who struck Jesus. They wait and gather with bated breath as this deep, gut-wrenching feeling of guilt 
and conviction pours over them. Imagine them thinking, what have I done? What did I do? Imagine them coming to, real, to the realization that they had in fact participated in the crucifixion of their Messiah. The Son of God. Totally and completely innocent and sent by God. Why didn't they know? And could they ever be forgiven? Peter confirmed the identity of Jesus first in his sermon. The second thing he did is he demonstrated Jesus' power through the healing of the lame beggar. And then third, he established everybody's guilt before God. Next, he shows them the way to salvation and the gift of eternal life through Jesus. I'm sure that as these people wondered, what, what's next for me? What could be done? Are there, are there enough bulls and, and, and goats and lambs to sacrifice? Is there enough blood for me to shed to receive forgiveness from God for what I did to His Son? So Peter continues in verse 19 with the good news. He says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Imagine how their ears perked up when they heard Peter say that. Verse 20, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Using Old Testament Testament Scripture and recent evidence provided by the miracle and the man standing next to them, Peter clearly communicated the true identity of this man, Jesus from Nazareth, as the Messiah. He showed them their culpability, their sin, their inability to make things right with God for what they had done in that event and and even through their life. But He gives them the, the, the final step in the Gospel that they too can be forgiven for what they had done. That the Jesus who did this great work in the life of this man desires to do a great work in their life. He first tells them to repent and turn back. To repent and turn back. To, to repent or to turn away from the sin of their life, the the things that have captivated them, that have been leading them away from God, to to turn from that, to turn their back against that, and to turn back to God. Now, why are they turning back to God? Because they were originally designed by God, in fact, all of us were, to, to follow Him and to have a relationship with Him. And then as we're born and, and as we begin making decisions, we, we decide to turn away from Him and to go our own way and to pursue our own will, our own desires, and, and to engage in our sin against God. So Peter beckons them to turn away from that. To turn away from that event when you help to crucify Jesus. Turn back away from your sin and your own will and to go back home, to come home to the God who loves you turn, repent of sin, and turn back to Him. And what's the consequence of that for them when they turn back? Look at the text. He says, your sins will be wiped out. Your sins will be no more. They'll 
be no longer remembered by God, no longer accounted toward you. You no longer have God's wrath hanging over you. They're gone. They're eliminated. The other consequence of that is that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You no longer live with that guilt. Imagine, imagine the gut-wrenching guilt that they felt in that moment when Peter helped open their eyes to see what they had done to Jesus. He said, turn away from that. Turn toward Jesus. And times of refreshing will come upon you. Now I wonder... I wonder, all of you who are in this place today, both believers and and non-believers, do you need to turn and repent from sin and turn back to God? Some of you maybe for the very first time. This season of refreshing, this transformation and transformed life, this new purpose, all of that awaits you. If you would just repent or turn from your sin and and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Or those of you that that are following Jesus, those of you that have already made that decision to follow Him, but there's something in your life that's holding you back. There's something that's drawing you away from a relationship with God and the life that He designed you to have. And you know who you are and you know what that is in your life. The Holy Spirit's probably bringing that to your attention right now. Turn away from that and come home. Turn away from your sin and come home where you belong. Come back to your purpose, to the life God designed you to have, and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Now, this presence of the Lord in our lives, this is a spiritual thing. It's not physical. I'm sure that the Israelites, when they heard this, thought, Amen, let's do it now. And then, and then Jesus is coming right now. And, and Peter continues, verse 21, he says, Heaven must receive Him until the time of restoration of all things, which God spoke about through His holy prophets from the beginning. So is, is this time of refreshment, the presence of the Lord is like right now, they're wondering? He said, no, no, no. He's gone up. He's at the right hand of God the Father like the angel said in Acts 1.11 when, when Jesus ascended to be with the Father and, and all the disciples are looking up into heaven and, and they saw Him go away and they're all staring there and then these angels come and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up at heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come the same way you have seen, seen Him going into heaven. So that same Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he will one day return. Physically, in our presence, that Jesus will come back. Until that day, he's with us. That's his promise in Matthew chapter 28. In fact, he says he'll never forsake us. That he'll always be with us, even to the end of the age. That same Jesus. Next, Peter quotes Moses' words about the Messiah from Deuteronomy chapter 18 in Leviticus 23. This bolsters his argument about Jesus as the Messiah and about what he came to do. And these two texts are kind of a, kind of a, a final warning to the people. Look at the text. Acts 3.22, Moses said, 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you, and everything who, everyone who does not listen to the prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Jesus is a line in the sand for the people of Israel and for us. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. He is God's Messiah. Peter reminds the people that there will be terrible judgment for those who do not receive Jesus as the Messiah. We now know that Jesus is the the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way to the Father. There's no other way to forgiveness of our sin and the everlasting life that God desires for us to have. It's only through Jesus. Peter continues in verse 24. He says, In addition, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham and all the families of the earth, will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. I don't even think Peter necessarily knew what he was saying in this part of the text. He's quoting Old Testament prophecy about the coming of a Messiah. God's people would first hear this glorious message of salvation, and then God would take his new prophets, the apostles and new believers, and send them out to all the people of the world. A gospel message, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, that's you and I, all of us, are given the opportunity to be saved. Peter finishes his sermon by reminding the people that this very moment was designed by God to fulfill his promises of salvation to Abraham. Life is a string of moments. We really do move from moment to moment to moment. This moment, right here, right now, is a significant moment for you. God's designed this moment for you. I want to invite our our team to come up and prepare for the invitation. God designed you to have a relationship with Him. God desires you, church, you born-again believer, to take the message that he placed inside of your heart, the transformation that he did in your life, and to go out and to tell the world about it. You may have been physically healed. You, You may have been healed of drug addiction or addiction to alcohol. He may not have healed you of anything that anyone could see, but you have inside of your heart a testimony about what He did in your life. And so, like Peter standing before thousands of people pointing to the man who had been healed, you can point to what God did in your life. And it's powerful. But in this moment, this specially designed moment, I think God is telling you something. Maybe He's telling you it's time to be saved. 
like the, the Jews who are gathered around Peter and John, maybe he's telling you it's time for you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus to receive this free gift of everlasting life. Don't let this moment pass by. If you feel that in your heart, if you feel a drawing from God and His Holy Spirit, in a moment we're all going to stand. I want you to come, come forward so I can pray with you and talk about that journey with you. Or maybe it's time for you, Christian believer, it's time for you to turn away from some sin and trust in God. Something that's holding you back. Something that's kept you from walking with Jesus the way you know you're supposed to. Whatever that is, don't let this moment pass by because this is a special moment designed by God to change your life because we serve a God who transforms lives. And He's not done with you. And He desires to transform your life too. Would you all stand with me? Heavenly Father, I pray over this time of invitation, over that person in this room right now, that you desire to change. Whether you desire to save them for the very first time or, or desire to draw them back to a, a righteous life in Jesus. Whatever it is that you've called us to do, Lord, help us to use this time in a way that honors you to capture and take advantage of this moment to be transformed by a living God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.